Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to deal with Wayne Rooney's Mount Rushmore problem. Essentially, in the last sort of year to 18 months, he's broken two of the most sort of special records that this country has in terms of attacking football. So he's broken the record for most international goals for England and most goals for Man United. Both of those records he's taken from Sir Bobby Charlton. So they're very iconic records, the ones that have lasted for an extended period of time. And yet, it they weren't particularly celebrated. They they weren't, you know, it was an achievement, but you know, he does it at international level during, you know, sort of another fairly, you know, uneventful qualifying and friendlies, you know, and for Man United he does it, you know, falling over the line, you know, they're, they're sort of spread out over you know, a few months, they're for kicks, tappings, they're not particularly important goals. And and this is really where the issue is in terms of sort of is that how we understand what greatness is. So there's many different ways of doing it. I, I, I prefer the American one. I think it makes the most amount of sense. So you have, you know, a Hall of Fame. And of that, there's different... I, I, the way how I like to put it is, is that you have... In any sport, a Mount Rushmore. So you have four or five people who who you would put on the mountain. And without those five people, you, you can't tell the story of the sport. And then you have, you know, a, a Hall of Fame. So that's you're usually somewhere in the region of your, your top 1% of players. And it, within that Hall of Fame, you really have an inner circle Hall of Fame. So the, you know, the people that you'd put on the list of the top 10 or the top 20, you know, and then you sort of, so you have the Hall of Fame and you have the, basically the line that says Hall of Fame, not Hall of Fame, you know, depending on how your sport does it. And then you sort of have what is a, is a baseball term, it's the Hall of Very Good. So people who just are really good, but they're just not Hall of Famers. And then you kind of go down and down and then you really get, you so essentially people who, you know, just decent pros and, you know, and then and those who served, you know, people that just were up for three or four years. But, you know, they deserve to be, you know, recognised in terms of their career, but nothing much more than, you know, sort of a couple of paragraphs or, you know, a couple of sentences, that kind of situation. And so this is where Wayne Rooney and his problem is, is that the greats, you know, to get on the Mount Rushmore, to get into the Inner Circle Hall of Fame, there's always a narrative, there's always a sense of... I wouldn't say destiny, but take golf, for example. Golf has the probably one of the easiest Mount Rushmore's that you could do. So you'd start with Bobby Jones, who's a fantastic champion in the sort of 20s and 30s, and on his retirement, you know, it's basically when golf is sort of pro and not quite pro, and it's getting towards a point where there will be, in the sunny uplands of the future, a professional golf you know, circuit. So you have the US Open, you've got you know, the British Open... Anyway, so he's a great champion at that one. When he retires, he, he basically thought, you know, he's involved in the creation of Augusta, which is, you know, a huge deal in golf, especially professional golf, and especially in America. So, you know, he's your first kind of, you know, person you'd put on there. Your next one is Arnold Palmer. So he's a huge thing in the 50s and 60s in terms of getting mainstream people into golf. You know, and it's when golf's now on television for the first time in a major way. Arnie's army. So basically, the common man is interested in golf. You know, it's also part of a. You know, these people, the people that end up on like your sporting equipment at Mount Rushmore, they're always of their time. So in other words, 
it's not just that Arnie is, you know, a very personable, you know, people love him and all the rest of it. And, you know, he's very, he's probably one of the first sort of television sports stars in some certain respects. But it's also the time that he's in, that's when people are moving out to the suburbs, where, you know, golf becomes a lot more viable than it had been maybe 20, 30 years or a generation before. Okay, so you then he's a great champion and, you know, really puts golf into the mainstream. And then you have kind of your next person on the list would be Jack Nicholas. So, you know, he's the next great champion. He's fantastic for an extended period of time. Again, you know, of his time, perfect kind of, you know, like, you know, idealization of, of what American golf stands for. Fantastic champion, you know, has all these battles with people like Tom Watson and all the rest of it. And then your final spot is, is Tiger Woods. He's the, you know, the person that then takes golf into a different, you know, stratosphere, you know, in terms of, you know, finance, in terms of, you know, the Nike sponsorship, in terms of, you know, being one of the world's most famous athletes, you know, almost, you know, he at some point overshadows golf for a little bit. And because of the, you know, symbolic importance of, you know, a, you know, African-American, you know, winning, you know, at Augusta and all the rest of it. So, yeah, that kind of makes perfect sense. So, and the whole, and it leads to a brilliant narrative thing. So, in other words, you know, Bobby Jones theoretically, I presume at some point, probably had a round of golf with Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer has a round of golf with Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas has a round of golf with Tiger. And, you know, it kind of leads on and on and on. So, if, if you take, let's say, football's one, it is a lot harder because it's, it's an international sport and it's, it's been going for a lot longer. In other words, you can't really. You know, if you're talking about if you were going to add someone pre Bobby Jones into the golf one, you're going back to sort of yeah, eighty, you know, nineteenth century Scotland maybe, and then that becomes a lot more complicated because you know there wasn't television, it wasn't a sort of media thing. It, it that's someone who you put into a hall of fame. You wouldn't put them on Mount Rushmore in that regards because the game wasn't professional. It wasn't you know, based along what it is now. Football's a little bit harder because it's been going for a bit longer in popular consciousness and. Yeah, is international. In other words, it's noticeable when you when I did this golf thing is that they're all American, you know, because America plays a huge role in you know, the foundation of professional golf and you know the expansion of it. So okay, if you, if you go for football, you know, your obvious two is you know Pele and Maradona, and which leads to an interesting sub argument of well, why isn't there any defenders? Why isn't there any goalkeepers? Problem is with goalkeepers, you could let's say you decided that. You had you had to have let's say four people, two attackers, actually no no let's say a, a midfielder, a striker, a defender, and a goalkeeper, and that's it. That's who you want to put on Mount Rushmore. Problem is is that with goalkeepers, it's that they have been brilliant goalkeepers all throughout history. So you got you know Lev Yashin, Gordon Banks, Dino Zoff, you know Gigi Buffon. No, there's how would you say one is better than the other? You might go with Gigi Buffon, but you know it's not. It would be a hard argument, and in the end, there's you can't elevate goalkeeping much more than you just are a great goalkeeper. You might say maybe the ones who were good with their feet, but then you say, well, yeah, that's you know that's getting really away from you know what goalkeeping is is as an art form in terms of your stopping goal. So you surely maybe go with the shot stopper. Anyway, the 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 point is, is that. You can really only put attacking players on Mount Rushmore because that's the raison d'etre of the sport. We're all here there to see goals. And preventing them is you know, a key part of it, but it's not something that you can elevate much more. In other words, you, you know, you, the argument of the greatest goalkeeper is who would you put in the greatest 11 of all time? 
you, it, that's not someone that you can then put on Mount Rushmore. In other words, you can tell the story of football really without mentioning goalkeeping that much. And it's a similar principle with defenders. I suppose if you were going to put someone in there, I think the closest person that you'd have to say would be probably Franz Beckenbauer. But even that... So, yeah, I mean, Franz Beckenbauer is kind of the, probably the closest defender. But even with him, the, the issue is is that he goes to the final as a youngster with West Germany in 66. 70, they get to the semi-final... 74, they win it, and he wins, you know, he has a lot of success with Bayern Munich, and he's fantastic, and he's a key key point of, you know, he probably the was, you know, the greatest sort of, one of the best sweepers, and so he does, in some ways, revolutionise a part of football, so you can make an argument, but at the end of the day, he's only won one World Cup, and you'd probably say, well, if you were going to talk about the, you know, overall importance, you'd probably say that Johan Cruyff probably has a slightly better argument, you know, because Johan Cruyff, the sort of legacy he leaves in Barcelona, the legacy he leaves at Ajax, the import, you know, basically, it's the, the point where you have to make when you're dealing with Johan Cruyff, is that, you know, you don't get Johan Cruyff without total football, and without Johan Cruyff, you can't really get total football. They're that kind of thing. One begets, leads to the other. and But even he's, a, a, you know, if you've only got, let's say, four spaces, even he's a slightly awkward one because you say, well, okay, they win you know, three European Cups. You know, he, he has success at Barcelona. But it's more, it's more of a wider sort of, you know, success. In other words, he changes the culture and the idea of what Barcelona is rather than, you know, piling up absolutely, hoovering up huge amounts of trophies. And even with the, the Dutch, well, he's not part of the 78 team. He doesn't go out to Argentina. And even in 74, they don't win it. And so, in other words, you've almost got a case where basically Johan Cruyff and Beckenbauer sort of cancel each other out, really. In other words, they're both really important. And maybe you might say if there was a European, you know, football Mount Rushmore, yeah, you could sort of argue both of them would be on it, but in terms of a world one, you sort of could tell the story of football without really necessarily needing to go as far deeper into Johan Cruyff and Beckenbauer, because in the end, the difference is, is let's say we've already agreed one, sort of Pele and Maradona, as you, you know, your first two, is that in the end, Pele wins it in 70 and 62 and 58. And the 70 team play fantastic football to do so, whereby with Cruyff, it's like, well, 74, we were 1-0 up, having, you know, kicked off, Germans haven't touched the ball, we got penalty and scored, but they don't finish the job off. And, you know, eventually, you know, the success that he has at Ajax is basically matched by Bayern Munich, Beckenbauer wins the, the cup. <laughs> so, but what it, what it then sort of leads to is that you have to go sort of delve into their into their stories. So in other words, it, with Pele and Maradona, I always find them fascinating because they don't like each other. And, and I think once you delve into it, you can see entirely why they don't. Is that Pele is kind of the, the older son, so he's the one who deals with all the responsibility. So, you know, he first breaks out in 58 as a young teenager in Sweden where Brazil plays some fantastic football. 
back to Sweden in the final. And really, the 58 is where there's there's an element of television in it. 62 in Chile, where they win it, there's even a bit more television. And it's really sort of 66 where the, the tide is turned. In other words, all the games are televised. And 70 ends up where you have colour television. You know, FIFA deliberately made the games be played at during the day. So that even though it's hot and it affects the football, but they want the European television audience to be able to see in colour. So that's really what covers his part of his career. In other words, that sort of 12 years. And... So, as a result, he, he's under more pressure than anyone previous to that. So, anyone who played in, let's say, the 54, 50, you know, 38, 34, 30 World Cup. You know, there, there was coverage, but nowhere near the same amount. And, you know, because of the success, and this goes into his playing career at Santos, but the success that Pele has is that he's successful in Sweden, in Chile, and in Mexico. So, all around the world, in, in a world that at the time wasn't globalised, he was the first sort of close enough athlete that you could describe as global so in other words you know americans would have seen him you know playing in the 70 world cup there was some some television coverage in the u.s so it you know, obviously there's a huge amount of interest in mexico latin america of course and in england you know because you know the brazilians going as one of the favorites because they won it in 58 and 62 and because of his playing career in santos they work out that he is money to them so in other words what they do with Pele is that they go on these huge long tours during the winter during the summer all across the world playing a game almost literally every sort of two to three days so in other words you know he's not just someone that you've read about in the newspaper you would have you know you would have had many people had the option of seeing him. so hundreds and thousands and millions of people have seen Pele play and if you're playing every two three days and if the crowd are going to see you specifically you have this enormous sense of pressure on having to you know look good even when he must have been tired injured any number of things but he had the sort of focus desire and the drive that led him to doing something that would leave the crowd going oh wow I've got my money's worth I've seen you know Pele which kind of makes the 66 one quite interesting because at the end of the tournament he said vows never to play in a world cup again because it's um I believe it's a group game against the Portuguese and the Portuguese absolutely just kick him I mean, and the refs don't do enough to stop it, and it's very cynical, it's very brutal, and, you know, he gets injured, and this is the last World Cup before subs, so he goes off, comes back on, he's got this huge ice pack, you know, strapped to his leg, he can barely walk, you can see the highlights somewhere, probably on YouTube, and so in, in effect, he understands you know, his value and the pressure that comes with it. He's in effect royalty, you know, but he's royalty that has to earn his paycheck. It's not just, you know, so he, he, you know, his way of acting, the fact that he understands himself as an ambassador and all the other bits and pieces and a leader and, and a sort of, you know, celebrity in that regards. Even, you know, he, once he leaves Santos, he goes to the New York Cosmos. So, and he's a huge part of, you know, bringing, you know, soccer football you know into the greater american consciousness because he is you know basically he's one of the first sports stars who's just known by name you know, pele everyone knows what that means and what that stands for whereby and also what you have to factor in with brazilian football is that there's always the the element of money power and 
the power of success. So in other words, when, you know, basically between sort of 58 and 70, there's military dictatorships. And one of the things that one of their sort of key elements is, is using the Brazilian football team and the wonderful football that they play as a means of projecting success. And also that they're different. In other words, most of the time when you think about dictatorships in the sports teams, you think of maybe the, the Germans, you, they, they tend to be very much winning, but it doesn't, there's not much flair. In other words, these dictators just want wins. They're not particularly interested in how you get them as long as you've won and that glory can then be you know, projected out onto the country and to the rest of the world. Whereby the Brazilian dictators are like, well, actually, no, look at our football players. They play so free and so wonderful as a sign that they're you know, slightly different and that they're actually more open than they actually are. And, you know, and how important success is. So he's someone probably, you know, more who understands you know, that there's a money aspect in terms of Santos, in terms of, you know, and what success can do. So Maradona's slightly different. He's like the spoiled younger brother, because basically he, when he, you know, starts his footballing career just before, you know, in the mid-70s, is, you know, fantastically gifted, and he's playing under a, a you know a, the junta a dictatorship. Problem. The thing is, by the time that you know he sort of breaks into the national team or becomes a really important member of the national team, it's after nineteen seventy eight. At which point, Argentina hosted the World Cup and won. So, in other words, the junta isn't that bothered. As far as they're concerned, their main issue was the seventy eight World Cup going well and them winning it. Both of you know elements have been achieved. And so as a result, there's not as much pressure on, on Maradona. There is a certain amount, but nowhere near the same pressure and interest. In other words, if, let's say, he comes out two years earlier and he is the centre point of the team, there'd be a lot more pressure on him because he'd have to deliver it. In other words, he's almost like a gift from the gods to the, you know, to the, the sort of junta. Because, in other words, they can say, OK, the 78 team, some of those players might retire, may, you know, might decline as players. We can now just, you know, basically plug in... Maradona, and we're then still going to be a very competitive football team. And by the end of the sort of seventies, early eighties, the Junta's collapsing anyway, so they're not in a position really to exert that much pressure. Whereby with Pele and Brazil, is that they're you know the the, the dictatorship is far more invested in the success. And this is where Brazilian football as a whole, this is why you end up, and this is a slight side point, but this is why you end up with the Brazilian team of the eighties playing this overtly aesthetic, brilliant brand of football, but it never wins. Because in effect, what happens is, is that the Brazilian fantastic, so, you know, I, I don't want to use the term standard football, but the Brazilian way of playing from 58, 62, 66, 70, wins three out of four, is so fantastic and wonderful, and they win. But And so the dictatorship and Brazil as a whole win, and they get used to winning, and it's something that's really huge because of the, the pain of losing in when they hosted it in 1950. But there's not too much money for the players. They, you know, they get bonuses, and you know, when they go on tour, Santos gives them some money, but not a huge amount. They're not the ones you know, making huge amounts of money out of it. They just get doing it for the glory. But basically, by the time you get to the late 70s and 80s, is that the world is changing. It's becoming slightly more globalised. It's becoming, you know, in 58 and 62, they're basically a fantastic team, and... Not many of them, you know, none of them are, are playing abroad as such. There, there isn't a huge amount of player movement. In other words, you literally, you know, it is, you know, the best 11 domestic players playing in a football team 
against the other. And there's not a huge amount of knowledge about the other teams. You'd have a vague idea, you know, you'd say the Italians are defensive, you know, some of the Latin American teams are quite physical and hard, but there's not a huge amount of knowledge. And it's, you know, run... It's not fully professional in, in regards. It's, you know, there's a lot of attacking football, there's a lot of goals. And as things are, you know, as, the, as it becomes, you know, there becomes more television, more rights, you know, you start getting kit manufacturers, kit sponsorship, is that there's more money coming into the game and it's becoming more professionalised. And so really when it culminates in sort of 70 is that Brazil is still a fantastic team. They play this wonderful football, but, but things are changing. By the time you get to 74, you've got the, you know, Total football against you know the, the sort of German Beckenbauer version of total football, and it's the Beckenbauer version that wins. His Bayern Munich team then starts to you know Hoover up all the European cups, and it's you know the the tough-minded Argentine team that beats the the Dutch again in the seventy-eight final. In other words, football is becoming you know it's you're not able just to outplay the opposition as such which is what you know the brazilians because of their you know natural flair and just the style of football that they played at domestic level were able to do things are starting to change so in other words you know johan cruyff goes to Barcelona and changes the way how Spanish football works. You've got, you know, a couple of the 78 winning, you know, Argentine team, they go to Spurs. Things are starting to change. And as a result, what you you end up with is that the Brazilians almost are, are fighting, a, you know, like the Brazilian teams of the Zico is that actually winning doesn't, you know, doesn't really I don't want to say it doesn't do it for them. They obviously want to win, but not in a way that is professional. So in other words, they're not just going to grind out the opposition and then, you know, the junta, you know, the, the dictatorship then just get to use that glory, you know, to allow them to keep going on and repressing. So in other words, for them almost playing this fantastic football that is just fatally doomed and is romantic is actually more important for them personally is that in other words they're not going to make any you know even if they win there'll be some bonus but not a huge life-changing amount of money so it actually for them it means more philosophically to actually just play for the love of the game and all the rest of it which then kind of leads to the point where actually why it's why you end up it's why they win it in 94 because by the time you get to the world cup in 94 basically Brazilians are starting to, you know, move abroad. So in other words, you know, whereby if you'd won it in the 80s, they'd have just gone back to their, you know, domestic teams, they'd be world champions, they'd be loved, but that'd be pretty much the end of that. Whereby, by the time you get to sort of 1994, it's like, actually, not only if we win this, I will then be able to move abroad, I'll be able to move to a really great team. So there's basically some, there's an element of finance in it for them. So, you know, basically, Pele could just win the World Cup for, you know, the joy of winning the World Cup and for Brazil. Whereby now it's a case of, yes, you win the World Cup for Brazil and the joy and the happiness it would bring, but also it would manifestly improve my career and my financial status in a way that that's not the case in the 80s. Because by that point, you know, you've moved away from dictatorship. There's not a, an element of politics in there that there is in the 1980s and late 70s. By the time you get to 90, you know, you've got, you know, you have... You know, you have politics, you have democracy, and you then have, you know, a, a, an increasingly globalised sporting world. 
where by so with so with Maradona, what what you have is is that he has this fantastic ability, plays brilliantly well for Boca Juniors, and then gets sold to Barcelona. Now his his time at Barcelona is is interesting and fascinating in its own way, but what it is is that his you know cocaine and addiction, his you know colourful personal life basically means that he does really well for Barcelona but he he's fight, constantly fighting with the fans with the managers with the ownership that you know he's constantly at war at on some levels even though that the actual physical numbers he puts up is really good it's it doesn't quite make you know that basically what Barcelona aren't willing to do with, with Maradona is basically say We'll give you a completely. We'll give we'll we'll give you give you the keys to the car. Do whatever you want, as long as you're you know basically performing. What they do is that they're basically a, a big club, and they they're not willing to let Maradona become bigger than Barcelona. And so in the end, they basically after a couple of years, they're fed up with him, and they realise that he's basically at this point worth a huge amount of money, and they decide to sell him for a world record fee. And this is where it's fascinating, is that, and this is why, what, how you end up on the Mount Rushmore is that there's always, you either basically, you either change your era that you play in, or you define it. So basically, if you change, your, like Tiger Woods changes golf. So basically, he turns up there, he's you know got these three hundred yard booming drives, and he's got this fantastic short game and everything else, and. He's just got this level of focus. Is that he can perform anyway? He can perform, you know, in the windy, rainy British Opens. He can do well at Augusta. He can do well at the U.S. Open, where you know they, you know, where it's just completely different conditions to the point where actually, you know, he's the vanguard of a generation which then changes golf. Basically, the the golf courses get bigger because you know they're just too small to hold someone of his talent. And his precision numbers. There's people that could drive, even drive longer, but they would usually nowhere near be as accurate. They would be inconsistent. They wouldn't have the short game, or their putting would be poor. Very rare has there been someone who was that good so uniformly, and someone who would always, you know, he he created an aura. You know, in other words, you you saw the red, you know, golf shirt on a Sunday. That meant that you were either, you know, gonna be in a fight of your life, or you were simply just going to lose. Like one of the famous ones is that basically if you played with Woods in like the final pairing, you didn't do very well. He would basically just by sheer presence psych you out. Whereby if you were you know in the last pairing with Ernie Els, who's a really universally lovely human being, is that you generally be you're quite happy and you perform well. You perform better because you know he doesn't psych you out in the same way. Or so that's basically changing it, or you can define it. And Maradona is more a he defines it, he doesn't change it. So he doesn't go to England, and obvious reasons, but is that simply in England there is no one virtually willing to put that sort of money into him, and there's no one that can really control him. Because not only, it's not so much, you could, you know, you can imagine there are people that might have given it a go, and even at his worst, at that time he was so good he would have added something, but the difference is, is that no one was in England was going to put five million dollars up to sign him. And it's it's fascinating. This is where is that 
basically he plays his best football at Napoli and Argentina and there's a reason behind that. So basically Napoli don't really have five million dollars but they somehow manage to scrape together the money well, by hook or crook and they give the Barcelona five million and he goes there and really essentially what they've done is they've just gone all in on Maradona. So that in other words there is no other option he has to be a success and they're basically more than willing to say do what you want here's the keys we you know we will work around you we work towards you do what you do which is why his numbers at napoli are nowhere near as uh, you know nowhere near as impressive as at barcelona but this is an era where serie a is very defensive and really what they can do is everyone really works insanely hard and over the 2 3 years they get better and better and he's just the fulcrum he's the heartbeat of the team and they win the scudetto now the point is, is that he doesn't go to a northern team because you know where you know, like a Juventus or an Inter or an AC, who presumably would have had the money. But the difference is, and this is why he doesn't have this great success at Barcelona, is that where Maradona plays his best is when he's on basically allow the chaos of his personal life. You know is. which is what effectively allows him to do the genius work he does on the football field. In other words, you, can't, you don't play like Maradona if you have a settled personal life, to an extent, I think. This is how I would view it. So that's why he does his best. It's because he's with the underdog. And that's what happens when he's at international level. In other words, you know, they stick him in, you know, they stick him in his prime position and everyone works towards him. They're not the greatest outfit in the world, you know, in eighty six and specific and especially in ninety, by which point, you know, the personal life issues have slowly started to sap his ability. But even then he basically is the reason that just takes a poor Argentina team all the way to final and they nearly win it. <laughs> So when he's a, you know, so he has this, you know, great, and he becomes part of the team. Because the thing is, is that in, you know, no, so when Maradona pitches up at, at Napoli, there's never been a southern team that's won the Scudetto. So it's basically, it becomes a sort of political issue and a socio-cultural issue. So basically the North with its powerhouse industry, you know, with Juventus, you know, and even to an extent you can say probably Rome with Lazio and, and Roma, is that that's where the power is, and the South is considered poor, ill-educated, and as a result, Maradona becomes a a symbol, you know, almost a symbol of the fight back, in other words, yeah, I mean, one of the arguments that they, one of the things they put up on the, um, on the walls is like, look, we, we don't have the education, we don't have the money, we don't have the government, but we have Maradona, and you don't. And so, you know, and that's what the sort of role that he plays at, you know, for Argentina. He becomes a symbol of the, you know, the nation, because obviously they have all the issues after the you know, fall of the Junta, you know, losing the Falklands War, and he becomes just a symbol of what Argentina can do on the, on the international stage which is not the role that he was playing at Barcelona. At Barcelona, it's like, well, look, we've had, you know, Johan Cruyff, we've had, you know, it's a different scenario, and they're not as willing to basically, you know, they're not willing to subsume Barcelona and Catalan nationalism for Maradona nationalism. It's just not going to happen, but it does happen at Napoli. And that's where, but the thing, so in other words, it, throughout his career he he needs to be the center he needs to be hero worship that's what brings out the best of him and he needs that 
freedom to behave how he does. Which is why they don't get on in terms of Pele. Because Pele is the one who has to do, play a thousand games, has to do all of these, jump through all of these hoops. And Maradona is completely the opposite. You know, he will just basically, he's not the type of person that's going to play you know, every three days. He's going to just you know, play by his own rules. And that's what brings out his level of genius. Which then, really, so that's where you get put those two on the Mount Rushmore. So who who do you put on next? It isn't, and this is the thing. This is why the the, the golf I mentioned the golf one because the golf one works really well because it covers you know the sort of pre-war, post-war, seventies and eighties, and then late nineties to the two thousands. That works really well with those four people. But most sport and history doesn't work in such a you know sort of narrative structure. It doesn't you know have a beginning, middle, and end. There are periods where. There might not be someone who overshadows the game, because you could say, well, basically, by you know, internationally speaking, you know, Pele sort of, you know, you know retires about seventy. By the mid seventies, he's playing in the NASL in America. So, in other words, Pele and Maradona don't really pass cross paths. They're they're fairly, you know, in other words, once Pele leaves, then Maradona comes up. But it's really only by the early eighties that he's, you know, kind of a known sensation in terms of the the wider world outside of, you know, Argentina. And so he kind of dominant up until about 90, maybe late 80s by that point. He's kind of, you know, he's, the wheels are falling off. In other words, there's only so much, you know, that his body can take. And, and this is, so, would you say that Pelé changes it because he, because he becomes the first superstar footballer, the one that's known all around the world, even the parts of the world that don't, you know, have a great history of football, so American and all the rest of it. Um, well, Mar- Maradona is more, he just basically sums up the era. In other words, at you know, the 80s, it's, I wouldn't say overtly defensive, but it's it's a hard, football is a hard game in the 80s. In other words, you, you it's basically very physical, very demanding, and the what jumps up out of it is that you have these handful of players across the world that do take it to the next level, who whose ability, you know, is so great that even the physicality. So in other words, you know, when he's out in Spain, you know, Maradona is treated brutally. He's fairly brutally treated in Italy by the defenders, you know, and in when you have a sort of a defensive era, and it's a tough era, the only way that you can counteract that is just by this pure genius. So you you end up with players like Erling uh, Brady, Platini. Maradona, even you could probably argue, you know, sort of a Glenn Hoddle type player. Those sort of players are all dotted around, and they basically are able to overcome the things. But in other words, what you have is is a lot of teams have you know that sort of tough you know back four, couple of defense, sort of defensive midfieldery types. You know, people that basically look after you know the, the number ten and make sure that you know if someone lays one on the number ten. You're gonna lay one on their number ten. That kind of sort of tit for tat. In other words, you know, Pele sort of, and the Brazilian team as a whole, you know, shows you what football can can be, and as a result, you know, moves football, you know, towards, you know, far more, far more fluid and more attacking sort of. In other words, basically, the fifties. There's lots of goals, but it's very helter skelter. You know, lots of, I'd say. Lots of dribbling, you know, very much, you know, A to B, whereby what 
Brazil show you is that actually it can you know you can play this beautiful flowing football and as a result by the time you get to the 60s you do get you know the, the early Spurs team of the 60s you get teams that are trying which then sort of leads on to what becomes total football you know it's people are inspired by the 70 Brazil team and you know and what Pele shows you you can do and so that makes football you know in a I wouldn't say better but you know it shows you what football is capable of doing whereby what Maradona shows you is is that this you know in especially with the 80s is that this is the way how the world is and this is how I will succeed within that the constructs of that world which is why basically there isn't really anyone in the 90s that you would say replaces Maradona and that you would then put on the Mount Rushmore which I think which then leads you really to who I would put on there, and I'd say it's Messi and Ronaldo. And, which then, which is why, I, which is why I'm, which is really why I'm discussing Rooney at the end of this. So in other words, with, with all the, the, the sports stars that I've spoken about, there's always themes and motif. In other words, you know, both Pele and Maradona, you know, they they don't come from the most wealthiest backgrounds, but they have a wonderful narrative. So, in other words, Pele goes to his hometown team Santos and leads Brazil to multiple championships, playing brilliant football. And you know, then at the end of his career, goes out and and adds this glitz and glamour to America and helps basically germinate the seed that then becomes football in America as a going concern. In other words, you don't get where it is today without someone like a Pele coming along at some point. And even with someone like uh, Maradona, in other words, he comes from a poor background. You know, and he's not the foot... At first glance, he doesn't look like someone who should be a brilliant footballer. He's small, he's squat, he's a little bit chunky. Whereby, at least with Pele, what you would say is that he was quite tall and just all the gifts he had, the physical gifts and the you know the finishing and the skill and the pace and all the other things that he had, which you know very few people you know at that type period had that kind of level of genius at that level and for that long. In other words, you had people that might be for five or six years great, but then they might get injured or they they might get you know. They might their form might fall off a bit. Pele for the extended period of time and thinking of all the games he played. I mean his physical stamina, you know, traveling all around the world at a time when you know, global travel wasn't you know comfortable in the way it is now or even accessible to that extent. So there, there's always a narrative. There's, they've always got some form of physical gift. In other words, the point is is that Messi wouldn't work in the 1980s. He's too slender. There are they would people would just damage him. In other words, it's Maradona's very squatness and power that is the thing that allows him to succeed in what is a fairly brutal era of football at times. Specific and specifically defensively, if you're talking about playing in Italy. So with Messi and Ronaldo, they they're people that change football. In other words, you know, they basically start out effectively as wingers. You know, one's quite tall and, you know... With Ronaldo, you, you could always project onto his body what he could become. In other words, that he's got the height, that he, you know, could develop the upper body strength and that he had all the trickery and all the pace and he could finish. You could see why when he just tore apart, 
you know, Manchester United and a pre-season friendly, why, uh, why um, Sir Alex Ferguson is willing to basically put in £17, £18 million pounds on a teenager. That, that was a fairly unprecedented amount of money at that time. And why? And you can see with Messi's genius, where he's obviously a lot smaller, and there's a reason he ends up at Barcelona in the sense that at the time, obviously Argentina has gone through huge amounts of economic turmoil and just complete disaster and economic meltdown and you know recession, depression, and as a, and he's basically grows up quite small and he needs steroids to help him grow. And basically, some of the Argentine teams sort of don't quite have the money. They they do and they don't. And it's basically Barcelona who are the ones who said, actually, you know what? Not only can you know, we can basically fly your family out, they move them to Barcelona, give them this, this, and this. We'll pay for all of the medical treatment, and you've got this you know great shot at you know, becoming a Barcelona player. And they they take that. He then goes out there and just you know. But when they first they first make their debuts, they're they're talented players. And I'm probably with Messi more. Is that he starts out a winger? You can see why he would be stuck out on the wing. But eventually, you know, his production it is too good and it's so fantastic that actually limiting him to one wing it is just is foolish. So they they move him into the centre. And one of the things that is fascinating is that basically, if you if you were to look at his numbers on a spreadsheet, they look you know virtually you know I see year after year it's between sort of forty fifty goals maybe ten fifteen assists uh, twenty on a good year, and it looks as if he's just been doing the same season every single year. But actually, once you look into it on a deeper level, actually what he's doing is you know one year he might be playing slightly more on the right, uh, some years he might be dipping in you know maybe a little bit more central but a little bit deeper, and he's always doing all these little adjustments. I mean, he has this fantastic ability to do virtually anything on a football field. You know, he's got the pace still. You know, he's got the close control. He can score from outside the box, inside the box. He can dribble. He can cross. He can come in from both sides. You know, he's worked with all these different sort of players and always had that kind of level of skill. So, and that's, it changed what people conceived of, of a striker. In other words, you, you, let's say in the 90s, often you'd have, uh, let's, let's take just England, for example. So you had... Let's say Alan Shearer banging in a load of goals. You know, you had Chris Sutton as kind of his, you know, the foil. He was, you know, he could hold the ball up. He could score, you know, 15 goals himself. But he was someone that could allow Alan Shearer to get that sort of goals. You had Ripley on one side, a good winger. You had Jason Wilcox. You know, you had a couple of creative players in the middle. But it was all designed on Alan Shearer getting 30 plus goals a season. You could say the same thing, sort of thing at Newcastle in the early 90s with. Andy Cole, you know, you had Rob Lee as a good, you know, attacking sort of midfielder, you had a couple of good wingers, you had Peter Beardsley playing just behind him, and, you know, the idea was Peter Beardsley would score about 10 goals a season, 8 to 10, lay on the assist, and Andy Cole could get 35 goals, and that was basically, but then you had to set those teams up so that this, the one striker would get the vast majority of the goals, and the second striker would chip in, and the wingers would then, you know, were creating service. Whatever goals they got were nice, but you know, it, you know, their primary focus was on getting the number one striker to get all these goals. And that's where you know Tay Sheringham does well because he can, you know, score fifteen to twenty himself, and also allow Jurgen Klinsmann to get twenty plus. You know, Chris Armstrong about fifteen twenty. That kind of basic principle. What Cristiano, what what Messi does probably slightly more quick before Ronaldo is that showed you that actually. You could get a centre and someone who's essentially could play in all of the attacking roles across 
the you know end midfield and you know, sorry attacking midfield and across you know the front line score thirty goals and also allow somebody else to score twenty and somebody else to get twenty. You know, it was that you know basically wholesale goals and someone who could score a goal a game. Whereby basically in the nineties we would thought well you know for the most part you, you could have a striker that gets one in two maybe a little bit above one in two but not a goal every single game, someone who can score hat-tricks on a sort of weekly basis, but at the same time allow for other people to get, you know, goals as well. It was, you know, it's not as if, you know, let's say, last 15 years that it's goal scoring has gone through the roof, but what, it, you know, these with the sort of advent of, you know, what I call gold standard football teams, you know, is that, there were players who could. And so in other words, this is what in other words, you don't get Gareth Bale without there being a Messi and a Ronaldo. Because he starts out as a fullback who's played a bit of you know wing back in a three five two for Southampton. Yeah, you know, he turns up at Spurs as an attacking left back. And eventually they work out that probably he's not got the defensive chops or possibly to an extent the physicality. <coughs> so they stick him, you know, at left mid. And it's on you know, and he's really great at left mid. But then suddenly it's, you know, his ability, it, it, putting him on the left seems a bit of a waste. It takes about a year for him to do really well. But once he gets into the centre, then suddenly it all opens up and he becomes this whole, you know, he can just destroy teams. And, you know, and that's why he ends up, you know, at Real Madrid. And, you, you know, to an extent you have to mention someone like a, a Zlatan within that. But with what I'm trying to say, and I'll probably go into a little bit more detail once I've you know discussed Ronaldo, because with Ronaldo, you know, we've left it that he's you know joined Man United. The point is, is that at first he is is trying a little bit too hard. So it's all about the tricks. It's all about being very much noticeable. His hair was very no, you know, his whole, you know, the diving and everything else. Basically, you could see the talent, but what it was is he wasn't. Translating that talent into production. In other words, it's it looks very good and it gets lots of attention, but it's not actually making him a, a particularly effective football player. Which is where he makes the adjustment. In other words, he he beefs up pretty much over the course of an off, an off season. You know, the coaches at Man United, more the assistant than Ferguson, are basically at at him to you know focus on you know the actual end product. And that's when he becomes what, what he is now. He then becomes this just basically force of nature because you know, whereby original Ronaldo could be, you know, knocked off the ball. He can't now. He's too strong. He, but he still maintained the, the pace. He's still got the trickery. And, you know, he then becomes just this absolute you know, destroyer of worlds. And, you know, then he sort of becomes much more central. And, you know, he... In the Premier League, which is a bit more probably a little bit more physical than La Liga, he's able, you know, with Rooney and Tevez and various other players that went through Manchester United at that time, created a re a, and a and this was at a time when English football was, you know, really doing fantastically well, you know, within a European context, so winning European Cups, finals, and all the rest of it. But at each time, there's both Messi and Ronaldo have the ability to. They have physical genius. So, in other words, Messi's feet, his you know, because he's quite small, his you know, um, low center of gravity. You know, the things he can do is just immense. In the same sense, you could say that for Pele. You could say that for Maradona. Any sort of 
great superstars. Anyone that you put into an inner circle Hall of Fame, depending no matter what the sport or you know Mount Rushmore for whatever sport, those people who get to the top, that they always have to mean something more. So that's why you can then explain what football becomes. In other words, what Messi and Ronaldo do is that they are very much they're cultural icons because they do. In other words, you know, Ronaldo is the perfect. I think, exemplar of, you know, sort of, of sort of selfie culture. <laughs> you know, in other words, you know, that he completely understands that his role as a brand. He's someone who's created so that basically when you say Ronaldo, everyone knows what that means and what that stands for and all the rest of it. In other words, he's not willing to just be a someone who's in the Real Madrid Hall of Fame and Real Madrid Museum and the FIFA Museum and the Manchester United Museum, he wants to be so good that he actually has his own museum. It's that kind of level. And it's like with Messi, that the both of them with their absolute obsession for winning and scoring and you know just pushing it to the absolute level, the nth degree, because their talent firstly allows them to do so. Which is what... And if you, you know, even someone like a, a Zlatan, you know, they very much sum up the the overall society and the era that they're in. In other words, you know, they're the ultimate YouTube footballers. In other words, you, you don't necessarily need to watch a whole 90 minutes. You can find out in five, ten minutes, you know, online, you know, the genius of Messi, the genius of Ronaldo, and the fact that, you know, the, the sort of cultural divide. In other words, you know, basically, do you love what, you know, the glamour that Ronaldo does and that the, the desire to win, the obsessiveness of even if the, the backup left-back scores a goal when actually he could have, you know, tapped the ball across to Ronaldo who would have then got, you know, let's say another goal. All the rest of it. Even though, you know, the times when he's like scoring five or six goals against Oppo who've already been more than battered. And the fact that, you know, between them both, they're both, one of them is playing for Barcelona and with Messi, his personality and this sort of, attitude from the sort of Pep Guardiola era in the sense that they all just drive their very their more functional company cars into you know into the training ground and it's like when Zlatan joins and you know if you look at Zlatan's sort of personal history <coughs> yeah so if you look at Zlatan's background basically where he comes from it, it you know he's um, children of immigrant immigrants in Sweden and you know from a you know, you know relatively impoverished background and you know what keeps him out of trouble is football and what leads him to this huge success so for him and his struggle in his life he's not going to sit there and just drive some you know pissant company car he's going to drive his three hundred thousand pound sports car because he's that good he's earned that and as a result you know no one's going to stop him and which and he, he he's basically perfectly right in certain respects that it's all a little bit you know false humility and all the rest of it but Barcelona aren't wrong and Pep's not wrong in the sense that keeping everyone on the same level because they are superstars they are having this huge and you know unending level of success but they're always fighting against Ronaldo that you know they need some element of you know to keep the egos in check and so in the end they, they go their own separate ways so some people think that you know Messi because of his you know, humility the fact that he's pretty down to earth and that you know the the sort of relationship he has with Suarez and Naima, in other words, whereby you'd normally think, oh my God, these people, you know, ha, you know how are they all working together? Surely that the egos aren't rubbing against each other. The fact they all a, are able to have success, and that you know the 
you know, the purity and the aesthetic, you know, grandeur of Tiki Taka you know, with Barcelona in comparison with Ronaldo and, you know, Real Madrid, where it was a lot of it's bought in. So in other words, you know, a lot of the great Barcelona players, they come through the youth system, they come through the Mainzer, whereby with Real Madrid, they're all brought in from various you know, parts of the world for huge amounts of money. And, you know, you've got this just super ego in, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo and some of the other players. So you, you talk about Casillas, Ramos, and there's always an you know, element of dressing room on harmony and all the rest of it. But then some people love that kind of glitz and glamour that Ronaldo gives you, even though it is fundamentally a complete lie. I mean, the guy is basically just obsessed about his career, sleeps, you know, like 10 to 12 hours a day, or doesn't drink, you know, is, you know, eats, you know, insanely healthy, is always training and always, you know, but at least at first glance, it looks as if, you know, he's always that, you know, movie premieres and he's, you know, that kind of, you know, even in the sense that he doesn't get married to like a, he doesn't get married at all, doesn't have, you know, like a superstar girlfriend, because everything is entirely designed primarily, you know, just for him to have this amazing career and to last for as long as humanly possible to never sort of back down and all the rest of it so that's why you'd put them two up there because they've changed football and they're the battle that they have between you know you've had you know this Barcelona were successful but now Real Madrid are sort of, you know they've won the league they've now won three out of the last four European Cups Ronaldo's would you know play a huge, relatively large role in Portugal winning the European Championship, you know, you've had Messi that have taken Argentina to loads of finals, never quite got over the, the you know, over the top. And you put those four players on there, and you know their their narratives and the, the ability they have over their bodies and the, the time that they're always in the right place. So in other words, it's you know the the battle that you know Ronaldo has at United to establish himself, then you know upskill himself to the extent that he can then get his dream move to Real Madrid where he becomes the highest goal scorer in Real Madrid history and becomes a huge part of that. You know, Messi going up through the youth system and being part of, you know, the pet you know, fantastic team and all the rest of it. And even the relationship he has with the Argentine people, at first it's they're a little bit cool on him because essentially he, he's lived out in Spain and Barcelona more years than he's lived out in Argentina. And then for a lot of years there was, you know, an element of resentment and that, you know, that he wasn't really Argentine, and yet he's managed to turn that around to the point when he did try and retire, you know, in pure disappointment when they lost the um, Copper America final, is that the, the, the country unites to try and get him back, and when the relief that happens when he does, which in a roundabout way puts us now back at Wayne Rooney, where we started. Now... His Mount Rushmore problem is this, is that if you create a, a Mount Rushmore for Manchester United, you have to put George Best on there. You then have to put Bobby Charlton. So Bobby Charlton. You'd have to put both of them on there because they are, you know, the, the in terms of ability, in terms of numbers, in terms of everything that Man United stand for, those two, you, you'd have to put them up there because, you know, the 68 beating Benfica at Wembley, you know, the genius that was George Best and that the cultural significance and you know in terms of putting Man United in a position where you know for 20 you know 25 30 years they don't win virtually anything and yet they're still one of the biggest and best supported clubs in in England and you know with a and global standing as a result of someone like him you've got Bobby Charlton who just stands for Manchester United you know in all of you know for all the years and the goals and the result he had for England you 
Yeah, there's no arguments. You'd have to put them both on there. You don't have Manchester United where they are now without those two people. Your third person, well, I'd, I'd say Cantona because he's the one that takes them from the you know, nearly winning things under Ferguson to then the stratosphere of the success they have upon the in the inception of the Premier League. You don't get Man United, you know, in terms of the money, in terms of the cultural significance, without Eric Cantona. He's the one that pushes them to the point where they don't just win a title, they win multiple titles. By the time he retires in sort of 97, 98, round about that time, they're just a couple of years away from winning the treble the, and going from there and becoming this sort of monolith. And you probably say the fourth person you put on there is, you know, Ryan Giggs, because he was there even before Cantona. You know, he's someone who's gone from their youth system and the importance of the youth system to Manchester United, the fact they've always had someone on the bench and in the matchday squad from about 1934, from the youth system to the present day. It's that and the significance of, you know, all the things he did. You know, he played all over the park for United. He scored goals. He was genius. You know, he is someone that just personifies that era of Manchester United. And in fact, even after he retires, you know, he spends a couple of years, you know, in the backroom staff, and they, and they, you know, he's someone who basically acts in certain respects as a bridge to the, you know, post Ferguson, you know, future. Yeah, you know, in, in terms of as an icon for the, until eventually they move on and they bring in Mourinho. But you, you make, you know, those four people would make a, you know. I think that covers most Man United. You could tell Man United's sort of recent history using those four people alone. I suppose if you then had to create maybe halfway down the mountain uh, a sort of a separate four, it's not necessarily. You'd have to put him Rooney on there, but it's not necessarily a slam dunk. You still have to, you know, you still got skulls, Dennis Law, you know, you st- you know someone like a Roy Keane, the importance that he had, and yet you put Wayne Rooney on as. It, within that kind of, within those four. In other words, you know, Roy Keane doesn't play for quite long enough, you know, to really be on the top four. You say, you know, Skulls doesn't, you know, Giggs plays for longer and is probably on the balance of play, maybe a slightly better player. Maybe I'm being a little bit harsh in that regards, but, you know, I, I probably, I think Giggs in terms of longevity and, you know, from being there just, you know, in terms of the 91 when they won the Cup Winners' Cup, you know, as a kind of, you know, I'd, I'd say that Geeks has got a slightly better, a better case in terms of just, in terms of overall meaning to Manchester United. And that's so you get Rooney there. But the point is, is that this is someone who has broken the record that Bobby Charlton's held for, you know, X number, you know, 30, 40 odd years. And yet he's still someone who isn't actually... On you know he's not someone who is you know he's on the second tier, and he's just about on there. You could you know, you might even say and possibly you know it's a Michael. You know there there are other players that you could possibly stick on that. Personally, I think he's in the top eight, but you know, it's he's basically it's not as if you could sit there and guarantee him at fifth. I would probably put Roy Keane in front of him. Uh, maybe have him in front of Dennis Law, but it's it's debatable in that regards. And let's say if you did the same thing for England. Um, of course, you had to have Bobby Moore. You'd have to, have, I'd say, you had to have Bobby Charlton again, of course. Uh, Gary Lineker. And 
In terms of the fourth person on the list, I, I would probably put Gordon Banks in terms of the, the genius that he was in terms of winning at 66 and the form he showed in 70. And the fact that he gets ill, they put in a reserve goalkeeper, they lose 3-2 to the, the West Germans. And the same thing you'd say really with Bobby Charlton is that you know, his 108 cap was the, the, the quarterfinal. He gets taken off to keep him fit for the semis. When he leaves the pitch, the Germans rally and they go through and win. I, so I'd say, even then, you'd say, well, if you can try to compare him to, let's say, you know, Rooney's international, well, he scored a load of goals, but he, again, had a huge amount of caps, you know, never really made a hugely great impact outside of you know, his first major tournament, the rest of it, is that, yeah, he's probably on the second tier again. You know, you'd probably then put him with, uh, who else would you put on maybe the second level of, you know, so you'd put Rooney on there. I suppose maybe you'd put Shearer, you know, but which is really what it comes down to is, is that when Rem really lacks the narrative, and also it in any discussion, you know, about inner circle Hall of Famers and people that you'd put on a Mount Rushmore, they're they're, they're always physical geniuses. You can get people that can get into the Hall of Fame who are just effort guys, people that just you know played for twenty five years, never put up in any given year, outstanding numbers, but just over the sheer longevity and desire and to keep going at it, would get there. But they're not in a circle Hall of Fame. They're just people who just, by sheer effort, got into the top 1%. But there's a limit. In other words, they can only go that far. They can just get into the Hall of Fame, but they're not at the upper end. They're just on the margins. They're people that, okay, if we had to cull it by 25 people, you'd be in that 20. Those player, type of players would be in that 25. In other words, you know, the, the ability that Maradona has in terms of the, the skills, all of those players that I've mentioned, the, you know, Zlatan and all the rest of it. Wayne Rooney is the only one that I can think of at the top of my head whose body is actually, well, there's not a nice way of saying it. He's got a crap body. You know, he's not blessed with overt pace. He wasn't overtly muscular in certain regards. In other words, he is just an outlier. He is someone who was given this bolt of absolutely world-class footballing talent in a body that is of someone who would have maybe had a, you know, if you just gave him average footballing ability, would have barely got to the Premier League. He'd have just been someone that, you know, that played four or five years. You know, at a team that maybe would stay up for a couple of years and then go down. He, you know, if you took away the 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 talent from Wayne Rooney, what would you be left with? He's not the biggest. He's not the fastest. You know, and so as a result, it it's very hard to really put him. And this is where is that he is such an outlier. It is, you know, if you compare him to any other sort of, you know. British sport icon or someone who was you know with Ian Botham it was the fact that he could hit a ball an absolute mile and could bat you know like a top end batsman with power and with kind of that boy's own thing the fact that you know when he when he bowled when he at his, maybe the first five six seven years of his career the first half of his career let's say when he could move it at pace and he you know he could bowl you know as fast as you know most you know Frontline bowlers, maybe not quite as fast as the West Indians, but he was up there within that kind of discussion and the skill that he had and the fact that he was such a great fielder at slip as well. But that's a lot of that's physical, you know, 
He's, he had the talent and also the mindset to utilise that talent in the most, I suppose, crowd-pleasing of ways. In other words, the 149er, Headingley, the Bolt, you know, everything else like that. You know, even Gascoigne in terms of, you know... I mean, he's supposed to be closest in terms of bad body, but in the sense that... He, you still, he still need to be that kind of size to withstand late 80s, early 90s football. Whereby probably now, with the sort of protection that is afforded in terms of the tackle from behind, in terms of you know the way how you know the game is administered, he wouldn't need to be that kind of size. He he probably you know football players now look a lot more slimmer than they were maybe a generation before. Even then, in terms of and he's at his absolute peak, I mean he's still got you know the pace, the power, and all the rest of it. Gascoigne's body is a lot better than Wayne Rooney's in terms of projectability and what he can do with it. Which is really what leads us to try in, in terms of trying to understand Wayne Rooney's career, is that it's it's almost like a a really complex Greek tragedy. It's almost got sort of an element of sort of Shakespeare to it in the sense that he has this just amazing ability, and it's a God given ability that is you know, and that he bursts onto the scene between by the time he's sort of sixteen, eighteen, you know, he is nationally and to an extent internationally known. But the problem is is that at every single step along the line the other people sort of learn. In other words, Ronaldo learns in terms of how to that you know, the, the step overs and the skills that he shows as a winger, while great and get the crowd interested and all the rest of it it doesn't make him actually that great a football player it just makes him someone that can do a job on the wing it's when he beefs up it's when he starts you know getting from a to b in the fastest possible way and you know just essentially utilizing his gift in terms of just putting up numbers is what makes him goes from being potentially great to being superstar changing the, the way how the sport is administered what I said about Messi in the terms of that he's always making these little subtle tactical adjustments that means that while all of his seasons look the same, they're all slightly different. It, they all have their own different quality in terms of the interplay of all the different players, formations, and how people are constantly trying to stop him so that you can't just basically man-mark him out of the game because then he might drop deep, at which point that then moves the space or if he goes out to the left and the right. You know, it's constantly reinventing himself to end up with the same result, which is the you know, 50, 50 goal seasons, 20 assists and all the rest of it. Rooney never learns that lesson. Because in the end, his body doesn't allow him to do it. I mean, he's at his best when he's young and he's still got an element of pace and the game is just really straightforward. And this is at international level rather than domestic level. His greatest success at international level is when it's completely uncomplicated. He's just going out there and just talenting it, and his body is able to utilize it. So in other words, he's still you know, he can run past people, but he's still got that kind of physical strength. And teams just aren't really able to deal with, you know, it's 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 basically it's nerveless. In other words, it's it's basically someone just playing with the complete freedom of youth, and just not, and just almost being so young, does not realise what he's actually doing. And the problem is, is that the second that ends, in other words, the second he gets that horrible, unlucky metatarsal injury and goes off, 
he's never able to recreate that because, in effect, you, you can't play like that. Eventually, what will happen is people will start counteracting that. You know, they will come up with plans to specifically stop you. In other words, you know, when he's playing at the year 2004, you know, he's made the squad and he, he's got potential, but there's no... There's no great level of expectation. We all hope it goes really well, but, you know, obviously, we can just go with Rooney and Heskey up front. They have, you know, they've had success at club level and an element of success at the 2002 World Cup. You know, the fact that, and this is what was so enjoyable about it was, is that it was slightly unexpected. We knew he was gifted, but it, we may have thought, well, actually, he'd probably be the next tournament. There's the one that he'll make the breakthrough. In fact, he makes the breakthrough then and there was so exciting and fun but the second by the time you get to 2006 there's expectation and the thing is is that his ability and gift is so spectacular that at domestic level he always put up the numbers no matter where you stuck it stuck him on the left he would talent his way to goals because he was just so good but the one thing he can't do that all the other sort of geniuses can do is that he can't quite control his body now, this is where the, the difficult difficulty is the nature-nurture side of it. So, naturally, he does not have the body that Zlatan has. He doesn't have the body Messi or Ronaldo has. I think that most people can agree on that. So, in other words, when you know, Ronaldo beefs up, immediately then becomes a different level as a player. Whereby, with Wayne, you, you've always questioned, like, well, okay, supposing if he had... Really tried to keep himself in just like brilliant shape. I think he would have been a slightly better player, but not by the same. You know, even if he'd sat there all day and practiced sprinting from you know noon to evening, he was never going to be rapid, and you know he was never going to have the sort of height, you know, and the ability to impact games in terms of like a, a Zlatan can in the air and in various other ways. But the nurture side of it is is that he keeps himself in bad shape. You know, it, the classic one is that Wayne Rooney turns up to peak season a little bit chunky and loses the weight. You know, in a traditional way that would have happened a generation, 10, 20 years previously. And he, he's the one, and he's now in a part of a generation where that doesn't, you can't really get away with that unless you have the sort of talent to counteract that, which he does, but then it doesn't, it can only take you so far. In other words, the drinking, the smoking, you know, the, the bad diet. It shortens his, you know, battery life in, to an extent. And th this is where the it becomes, is that he has a body that probably precludes him from being truly great. But at the same time, the talent, you know, in his 20s masks that because, you know, he still scores loads of goals for England, scores loads of goals for Man United. You know, they win leagues, they win Champions Leagues. It's hard. It's not. In other words, it's very difficult. You can't really find someone specifically to blame. You know, you want to say, well, maybe it was Ferguson's fault. But as far as Ferguson's concerned, I spent twenty, thirty million, you know, about twenty, twenty-five million pounds on this guy. He's put up. You know, he's broken the record for the most Man United goals ever. Won a load of titles. I got exactly what I paid for, and then some. And you say, well, at international level, you know, he's got hundred plus caps, scored fifty plus goals. That's you, you know. That's broken the record. What more, you know, in effect, could you want from him? It's that. 
and you, you can really criticise Everton, they only had him for really a couple of years when he was playing in the first team, and he was doing really well, enough to be sold to the biggest club in the country, and big, one of the biggest clubs in the world, in United. It, and this is where almost the narrative side fits in. I've always argued um, that probably the, the most unfortunate thing that ever happened to Wayne Rooney was that he was born an Everton fan. No. You know, he breaks through Everton, his boyhood club, does really well, joins Man United. The point is that if he'd, let's say, grown up Liverpool and joined the Liverpool youth system instead of the Everton one, is that he would have, you know, I presume would have broken in exactly the same sort of time, so the early 2000s. But he would have broken through when they still had uh, Robbie Fowler, Michael Owen, Steven Gerrard, Jamie Carragher, and I think he would have the narrative would have made a lot more sense. So he'd have come through just when Liverpool were starting to challenge Manchester United. Do you imagine you stick Rooney in that team? You probably would have got at least nicked one league title. So then suddenly he would have been the player that came through the youth system with all the other great players and won Liverpool the won Liverpool the Premier League and you know naturally a couple of years later they win the Champions League he could have been involved in that and suddenly he would have just been the next in a long list of you know great players so he'd have been like okay so it's Rooney Fowler you know Ian Rush Dalglish Kevin Keegan you know that sort of principle he would have just been the next one on and he came up and put us back into our rightful place. And he would have been surrounded by lots of other people, you know, who've come up for the youth system. And I I think in that regards, people would have then, I think, seen him in a slight, in a di- completely different way. Is that, you know, because Everton don't have an international following, they don't really have a national following. It, they're, you know, it's more, much more of a local club whereby Liverpool are, by nature, just an international outfit. And so... And then he, I think he would have then be considered a lot differently. And if he'd then gone on and had a long, really successful career at Liverpool, he would then go into, the, you know, be part of their sort of, you know, their inner circle hall of fame. Whereby with Manchester United, have we seen is that they're already really successful, and and it's not as if he develops at United. He he is, you know, when he turns up, he scores a hat trick on debut, and he's exactly what he he was supposed to be. And he leads them to the success they wanted and, you know, re-energised Manchester United. But at the same time, you could say that Ronaldo played just as important a role within that. And at least with Ronaldo, he sort of joined and then had to go through the, I suppose, the, the struggles to then finally come out as this, you know, fantastic attacking swan. So he was at one point a bit of a sort of ugly duckling, and which is not something that Rooney goes through. And so... And it's... it's, it's it's a tragedy in the sense that, and this is why he's right now. We're, we're all struggling to fight, to almost create a narrative for ourselves because he's broken these two records. And part of the reason why I think he ended up breaking this record at United was that he got too close. Is that maybe two years ago when probably he could have left and gone somewhere else and maybe tried to reinvent himself? Is that That would have he could have then reestablished himself somewhere else, maybe like an Everton, and then it would have you know you'd have, let's say okay it's now you know you've almost squared the circle and you've you've come back to where you started and you know everyone was kind of had sort of a warm Disney sort of Hallmark Channel kind of ending to it, but because he was almost so close and at the time United were almost in a way so desperate not to lose face and not to believe that they were about to you know 
fall into irrelevance after the sort of end of Ferguson. They give him this huge, insane contract where they were literally must have been negotiating against themselves. So they've given him three hundred grand, which means that anything when him leaving would then be effectively a pay cut of some nature or a drop in, you know, in terms of just maybe from an ego side of it. So in other words, he'd have to then move out to... I mean, I personally think he should move out to the MLS. I think that would suit him. He would score 25 goals a season. He would look really good. And I think he'd enjoy his football a lot more. But I can understand from his perspective how that would be almost like two or three drops in, in one go. And the sense that people say, oh, well, he's gone to the MLS because he can't hack it anymore. I can see where he's going from that one. And this is really where it comes down to. We've, we re- He deserves a, a, a part of the blame for not keeping his body you know, in the, most, the best condition that he could have done. And that's why his career you know, is, at this point, flatlining in terms of his physical ability. And at the same, same time, you have to say... He, you know, trying to compare him with the Messi's, Ronaldo's, Latans, and Pele's, and Ronaldo is unfair because he doesn't have their physical gifts. He can't control his body in the way that they were, and that's something that you know. And that's the tragic, tragic element to it. So in the end, what he's one of the very few top level Hall of Fame players. I mean, his body is almost a bit like Pete Rose, but in baseball. And what Pete Rose was known for was just. Charlie Hustle. He just gave it 110%. He was never... None of his baseball shots was that brilliant in terms of... He wasn't a great fielder. You know, he never hit a huge amount of home runs. What he did do was, was turn up every single day, give it absolutely max effort, you know, and just lunch pail ethic. And in the end, he and he just lasted his career, went on and on and on, well into his 40s. Long after he became... Long after he'd really stopped being a useful player because he in there wanted the hit record. He wanted to beat Ty Cobb's record of, uh, I think it's 4,125, somewhere in that vicinity. And, and he, he was so obsessed about it, he would dream about Ty Cobb at, at night. And then eventually he broke the record. And that's probably, in some respects, the sort of closest... You know, he, he, he just by sheer willpower, overcame his, you know, talent deficiencies as such. But... With Rooney, what it is is that it, he just had this glorious gift. And as a result, the only this is why he almost gets so frustrated in terms of you know, his manner on a football field. Is that all he can do on a football... He's not the smartest player on a football pitch by a country mile. All he can, all, the only solution that he can have to any footballing problem is to talent his way out of it. Which is why, in effect, theoretically, he should be quite a good midfielder because he's got the range of passing. You know, he he's someone who puts in max effort. He can tackle. You know, he has shown on certain instances that he can play in midfield. Now the problem is, is that what he can't do is that while individually he can do all the bits and pieces. You know, he's got a good long shot on him. He can. You know, he has a decent free kick on him. You know. He can, you know, he does have an element of positional awareness, but what he cannot do is put them all together within an actual game. So, in other words, he doesn't know how to set the tempo of a game. Is what someone, if you're playing his sort of role, like a sort of Pirlo-esque role, is that all he can do is ah, oh, I'll ping the forty-yard ball, and it looks brilliant, and it does exactly what it's supposed to do, but it can be. 
because he plays on slightly slowly in midfield, is that you can counteract that. You can cover the 40-yard wonder ball, which makes it less effective. And so as a result, and the one thing that he was never able to do as a player is work well with other players. In other words, they tried everything. At international level, I mean, okay, some of his managers were pony and, you know, possibly maybe you could even sort of blame the supporting cast to an extent. You know, it was a sort of toxic cocktail of, you know, there wasn't, you know, there was talent, but maybe not a huge amount of talent up front. The managers were, were cautious and they were always trying to shoehorn midfielders in. And as a result, it you know, it, there was never really a system that fully worked at the highest end, so you talk about you know second round quarterfinals onwards, but they tried they tried big strikers like Heskey, they tried Owen, they tried every single last option around him, even you know putting him in midfield so that you know Deliani could push a bit forward or you know, carry. They tried everything, and at no point did he ever actually make any other player around him better. Because in the end, all of his solutions to anything would be just for his talent to do do the work. Which, when you're at Manchester United with all the sort of surrounding cast, you know, your Carricks, you know, Ronaldo, Tevez, even to an extent of Berbatov, you know, Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, you sort of could get away with that because his talent was so outrageous and because United was so successful at domestic level. But when it came to international, at the absolute highest peak... He was never able to do that. In other words, that all he could do was, you know, in effect, you know, a bit like Pete Rose. He could just hustle, and the more he hustled, the more frustrated he would get, and the more he would try and talent his way out of it. But what he was never able to do was to tactically use that talent in a way that got them from England from A to B in the quickest way. In other words, when he was young and you know, at Euro 2004, when, you know, he was just on, you know, just on riding a wave. And he was just, they just told him, look, you're 18, it's your first tournament, go out there and just, just have fun. That was when he was, and his body was probably at its peak. The second that that dissipates, the second that it's like, okay, we're now at the, you know, World Cup in Germany, there are expectations and, you know, defenders, I've, I've had two years looking at your, you know, your numbers and the way and the video and the way how you play for United and they're going to try and counteract you by doing this X Y and Z. He was never able to work around that. He was never able to put a tactical plan, and no one at you know England level was able to utilize that tactical plan. So in the end, what happens is is that you have great moments, but never actually a an overall great performance at an international tournament from that point. You know, the classic example is when he's um, the start of the um, oh, I, yeah, it'd be the World Cup out in Brazil, and they play out in uh, Manassas, I think. I could probably butchered the pronunciation. Anyway, they stick him out on the left and against Italy, and he just covers an immense amount of ground. I think he was one out of all the players he played. He, I think he covered about thirteen kilometers. Huge effort. Problem is, is that. Defensively, he, he wasn't the best, and he put all that effort in, but it didn't actually come to anything. In other words, one of their goals comes from the left because he, you know, I think he misblew a defensive assignment. You know, the, the goal that England scored doesn't come from his end. 
and it's just that thing. In other words, you put in so much effort, and yet the actual end product was nothing. And so the problem was is that he was ran himself into the ground. Three days later, you know, not playing in a tropical desert, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't able to recover quickly enough. And then so the second game, he wasn't particularly effective. At which point, they've been knocked out of the tournament. And it's that kind of. It's just every single thing that worked out well for the people on the, you know, in terms of, you know, Pele being part of a great Brazilian team. In other words, if Pele's born Uruguayan, he's a great player, but he's lost to history because there's just lots of other great players who played, but just may have got to a World Cup. You know, Maradona is perfect because he comes in at a time of football where someone like him is likely to be absolutely incredibly successful and he plays for an Argentine team that needed someone with his level of genius you know Messi is managed by Pep Guardiola when he first gets into the the first team and establishes himself you know Cristiano Ronaldo goes you know it you know establishes himself at Man United and then when he's at his peak Real Madrid needs someone because they, you know, they've had this run of poor form. They haven't, you know, they're not able to compete with Barcelona. They need a spearhead. They need someone that will re-energize the club and bring it back to its rightful place. And he's the perfect person to do that. Whereby, the issue is, is that when he turns, really turns up at Man United, yeah, they they, they need him, but he's just. It's almost a bit like a, a Marvel film. He's just one superhero out of many superheroes, whereby. And even at, at international level, you know, he he's seen as the, you know, the sort of final piece in the jigsaw. So in other words, you get Gerard, Lampard, you get a load of really good defenders in Rio, Terry, and handful, you know, King, and a handful of other players. So they've got all the sort of building blocks, and they think, oh well, yeah, we need a striker to really sort of pair up with, with Owen, and you know, a sort of an attacking fulcrum. And he's, you know, and and the you know he's it as in effect. But the problem is, is that he doesn't have the tactical nous, and he doesn't have the body to fulfil that. So in the end, what happens is he ends up, you know, with the all he can do. He's got basically two options on a football field: is to run harder and talent it out. In other words, he's not able to utilise his teammates. He's not able to utilise systems. He is, in effect, a one-man team. And the problem is, is that you know, he, he's because he's so talented and he's so successful at domestic and to an extent even at international level, at least you know at first glance in terms of the the actual bare numbers, is that he's never able to come up with a plan, a plan B of you know how do I get the best out of everyone, everybody else in this England team, and then how can we then you know get to a point where either we're, let's say, defensively hard to beat, and then I can just get a couple of goals, and that takes us to the semis, and if you're in the semis, anything can happen on the day. And he's not able to do that, much in the same way that the back end of his career, when basically his body starts giving out on him. All he is trying to do is basically talent his way out of it. He's not, in other words, he's always like, well, if only there's another, if only I do you know, five or ten 40-yard wonder balls, that makes me a midfielder, but it's not, He's not tactically aware enough or even aware of his own limitations in the sense of, you know, how can he be an effective part of the midfield and of the team as a whole? 
In other words, he he's basically, you know, because now he is diminished, and the more that his body fails, the and the less his talent can overcome that. He really is, you know, now sort of effectively lost. Because even if he goes, let's say, let's say we try and create the hallmark Disney ending for him, is that he he's not at an age where he can learn a position now. He's too high up in terms of importance. He can't just say, well, actually, I'm going to uh, I, Burnley and I'm going to learn to be a really effective defensive midfielder. It, it, you know, he's on 300 grand a week. They don't have the money to buy the transfer fee or to give him any even a third of that wage, which would be an insane risk for Burnley without there being a tremendous amount of upside. Okay, he... You know, if he goes to the MLS, yeah, he'll do well there, but it's at a level that is, you know, some. I suppose if you're looking at the MLS, you'd say that sixty percent of the league is probably somewhere close to, I suppose, upper League One. About twenty percent of it is Championship quality, and the upper ten percent of it is Premier League quality. So as a whole, it is you know a lower league much lower league than the Premier League, but it, in parts, it does have enough quality to be at Championship and Premier League quality, which is where he would do well, but then you're giving up on the international side of it. It's a bit like, um, there's a sadness to it, but, you know, at some point, it's not all of his fault. He's been under tremendous pressure ever since he was about 16. He's played a lot of football. He has achieved a, a tremendous amount, but there will always be that element that, you know, there was a level that he may have could have got to had he been more tactically aware. I think the the best person probably to end this podcast would be talking about him and Tiger because I think that there's certain similarities. But when you're when you're talking about Tiger Woods, he's different from Rooney in the sense that he has the physical gifts, so that when his dad trains him, those physical. In other words, if Tiger Woods' dad had trained me. I would probably end up being a, you know, a really handy golfer, but I'd be nowhere near a professional because I just didn't have that you know, natural genius for it that allowed him to, that when he was nurtured correctly, created one of the world's best golfers. Now, the problem is that with what the end product of what how he was brought up was that he was brought up to be the world's greatest golfer with no plans for what happened when he was no longer the world's greatest golfer. It was as if, basically, no, you know, his dad and had ever really sat there and said, well, at some point, son, you're not going to be any good anymore, and this is basically what you would do. You'd maybe go into television or coaching, or you'd just, you'd play on the senior circuit for a year, or you'd spend the last five years, you know, just almost like a lack of appreciation, turning up, winning the odd tournament, and hoping for maybe that lucky Masters where, for the weekend, you turn back time and win it, and then that's the nice bookend of your career. Which is where you have the situation with him now, is that he's got absolutely no idea what to do. He's just... All he can do is say, I'm going to make it back, I'm going to be one of the world's best golfers, and it's just like, well, it's physically impossible. You've had four back surgeries. You know, the strain that you put on your body ever since you were a kid has given out. You know, no matter how much you train, no matter how much you... Whatever you do, there is no magic bullet that is ever going to restore your body to anything like what it was and what you would need to now, because he is now in his mid-40s, to compete with guys 20, 
plus years younger than him, who are all now able to hit the ball further than he could, much in the same way that he was able to hit the ball massively further. And this is where both him and Wayne Rooney are, are sort of kindred spirits. They're both people that don't have a plan B and who aren't able, who all they have now is they're just trying to eke out the, the dying embers of their talent. But without ever... So what Tiger Woods doesn't have is the ability to see himself other than being just a golfer and being Tiger, this wonderful, amazing golfer who you know is a child prodigy who just gets to the absolute top. Um, whereby with Rooney, it's someone who was given this amazing, uh, tremendous gift, but just being in the wrong place and not quite the right time. And and this is where, if you look at it, you know, Zlat, you know, Messi and Ronaldo, they're hard to know. Even to an extent, Pele is somewhat hard to know. Maradona, you, you can sort of understand where they are, in other words, in that, you know, Pele is someone that ha is, you know, footballing royalty, he's someone that is used to being admired and being world famous for his whole life, and the responsibilities that come up on it. What Maradona is, is someone whose gift you know, the only, you know, leads to his downfall. In other words, the only way, you know, he plays in a way that you just can't, an ordinary mortal couldn't conceive. And as a result, he lives a sort of lifestyle that an ordinary person cannot conceive. You know, with Ronaldo, he's someone who's drive, who's from this sort of very deep personal pain of, you know, his family situation where his dad is an alcoholic and, you know, essentially, you know, dies young. And the sort of the pain of that, and of you know coming from you know Madeira and having the, the the drive and the determination to make himself to make Ronaldo someone whose name will just echo throughout history, because you know, the funny thing is there is over an original Ronaldo. You have the Brazilian Ronaldo, and his desire is so strong that he's in effect overwhelmed that one of the better greatest one of the greatest strikers that you know a generation had. He's now overcome, you know, overwhelmed that is that now you've got you got Cristiano Ronaldo and then the other Ronaldo. And with Messi, the sense that this, you know, you know, this talent that was, you know, in the, you know, kind of born out of the dire straits of, you know, recession and, you know, issues in in Argentina. And that, you know, basically all it takes is, you know, once he has the treatment and is then able to, to grow, even if it's not to a huge height, he's still, you know, quite a short bloke. But then he's, you know, then taken, you know, from the recession and damaged Argentina into the, you know, the cathedral, you know, footballing cathedral, Barcelona and La Misa and Johan Cruyff, and then becomes the next great player. So, you know, you've got, Cruyff, you, to an extent, in Barcelona, you sort of have Maradona now. It's been 20 years and people, you know, 20, 30 years, and people have kind of forgotten the actual issues that were there at the time. People can now just say, well, he played really well for Barcelona, scored a load of goals, and so on. And then you've got, you know, 
you know, the sort of Lineker years. And, you know, he's just the next and then leads Barcelona into, like, the promised land. So, in other words, when he first pitches up, you know, back, you know, right at the absolute start of his career, Barcelona win their kind of second Champions League. The first one they win is the European Cup in 92 against Sampdoria at Wembley. And then he just creates a footballing dynasty. He's at the heartbeat, the centre point of a footballing dynasty. So there is that narrative sense. Whereby with Wayne Rooney, it's more, and to an extent Tiger Woods, it's talent and the downfall and not being able to work, you know, to deal with the the limitations of Wayne Rooney's body and the, the, the limitations of you know with Tiger Woods of being Tiger Woods and you know all in the end his body fails him and also you know hubris in other words you know he's just designed almost entirely with the concept of be the world's greatest golfer and the pressures and the strains behind it really do then lead to you know having a, a sort of a second life, this kind of murky exist, secret existence, you know, full of affairs, and which then means that it's all kept under until it explodes, and then as a result, you know, then married up with the the pain and the strain that his body is under, he's just never able to recover. Even if he physically recovers for a couple of years, he's never the same golfer that he was when he was just Tiger Woods, world's greatest golfer. Because once you, you know, essentially once you threw a spanner in that machine, and once the machine started to creak, there was his basically his, you know, golfing CPU was never able to fix that or to work around it or to deal with you know limitations. Much in the same way that Wayne Rooney's CPU issue in terms of sport and in terms of football was that he had this ability, but not the narrative. And not the the physical body and talent to to either define his generation or change it. It's Messi and Ronaldo that that have changed the generation. He doesn't define it in the sense that all he has done is he is doing this for England and Manchester United, but not he's not he's not the inner circle of world football. There, are, you know, Zlatan's a better player. There, there's other people, you know, original Ronaldo, he he never quite got to that level. And part of it was because his body wasn't, you know, never had the capabilities of any of the people I've just mentioned. And also because he lacked the professionalism to work out that his body was weak and that he would then have to counteract that. All he could ever do is talent it and effort it. He, he seemed to lack the, the ability to firstly recognise that his body wasn't the best and that he would have to work twice as hard off the field as on it. He never does that or he never works out that actually because his talent on its own at domestic level would, was brilliant, but what he never seems to have, of once it gets tactical, once you have to really start thinking about it at the highest level, which is, you know, World Cups and all the rest of it, He's not able to work out how his talent works out with the other ten players. He is just a one-man band. And and that's the, the tragedy of it, is that he's a one-man band with facial flaws. Thanks a lot.